Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Trusting in God's grace that we know through the baptismal waters, let us confess our sins together. Your words are given to us, author of life, so we might be reformed, but we are intent on changing others. Your words are offered to us so we might be transformed, but we focus on conforming to our author. Your words are spoken to lead us into new life, but we hold our old ways tight to our chests. Forgive us, God of wonder. Do not remember our sins, but continue to touch us with your steadfast mercy. Show us how to be persistent in living out our faith, even as you were so tenacious in offering us your grace and life in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, cheerless hearts sprang to life when Jesus taught the scriptures. Now speak to us, we pray, and hearten us. Break the word upon us like a brand new day. Make us cling to it like a long lost love returned. Give us joy in its understanding and courage in its costly claim. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The Old Testament lesson this morning is found in the book of 1 Kings Chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. So his servants said to him, Let a young virgin be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be his attendant. Let her lie in your bosom so that my lord the king may be warm. So they searched for a beautiful girl throughout all the territory of Israel, and they found Abishag the Shunammite and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. She became the king's attendant and served him, but the king did not know her sexually. Now, Adonijah, son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. He prepared for himself chariots and horsemen, 50 men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by saying, why have you done that? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, son of Zariah, and with the priest Abithar, and they supported Adonijah. But the priest Zadok in Beniah, son of Jehoiada, and the prophet Nathan and Shimei and Rei and David's own warriors did not side with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fatted cattle by the stone Zohilath, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite the prophet Nathan or Benaiah 
or the warriors or his brother Solomon. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, son of Haggith, has become king? And our Lord David does not know it. Now, therefore, come, let me give you advice, so that you may save your own life and that of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servants, saying, Your son Solomon shall succeed me as king, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adjoniah queen? While you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his room. The king was very old. And Abishag the Shunammite was attending the king. This is the word of the Lord. to add a second reading from Kings, the story of Elijah. This is from 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, how he had killed all Baal's prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah with this message. May the gods do whatever they want to me if by this time tomorrow I haven't made your life like the life of one of them. Now Elijah the prophet was terrified. He got up and ran for his life and he arrived at Beersheba in Judah and left his assistant there. And he himself went further on into the desert for a day's journey and he finally sat down under a solitary broom brush. He longed for his own death. It is more than enough, Lord, take my life because I'm no better than my ancestors. He lay down and slept under the solitary broom brush. Then suddenly a messenger tapped him and said to him, get up and eat something. Elijah opened his eyes and saw flatbread baked on glowing coals and a jar of water right by his head. And he ate and he drank and then he went back to sleep and the Lord's messenger returned a second time and tapped him. Get up, the messenger said, eat something because you have a difficult road ahead of you. Elijah got up, ate and drank, and went refreshed by that food for 40 days and nights until he arrived at Horeb, God's mountain. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And the Lord's word came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah replied, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces because the Israelites abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars, and they have numbered, murdered your prophets with the sword. And I'm the only one left, and now they want to come and take my life also. The Lord said, go and stand at the mountain before the Lord. The Lord is passion, passing by. And a very strong wind tore through the mountains and broke apart the stones before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord wasn't in the fire. And after the fire, there was a sound, thin, quiet. When Elisha heard it, he wrapped his face in his coat, in his coat, and he went out and he stood at the cave's entrance, and a voice came to him and said, Why are you here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very passionate for the Lord God of heavenly forces, 
because the Israelites have abandoned your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they have murdered your prophets with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they want to take my life too. The Lord said to him, go back through the desert to Damascus and anoint Haziel as king of Aram. This too is the word of the Lord. One of the messiest stories I know about the Bible is true and begins in the home of a pair of stubborn Presbyterians. Clyde was a tough, self-made man in the classic sense. He was a successful farmer, and he grew because we were in rural North Carolina, tobacco and corn and soybeans. Clyde's grandparents were Scottish emigres, Presbyterians too, who lived in a tar paper shack and scratched out a living from the red clay dirt. Over time, Clyde's family prospered, and he and his brothers and sisters built up a profitable operation. He was, if anything, dogged in his determination to make as much money as he possibly could, while spending as little as possible. His wife Libby was, well, she was the center of our Presbyterian congregation, kind of the center of town, really, and she called me and asked me to go see her husband. Clyde was polite but aloof by nature, and he had little tolerance for organized religion and less, in particular, for pastors. <laughs> and so we knew each other in the way that Kathleen Norris has called the small-town way of imagining that we know each other all too well. So on the afternoon that I went to visit, he was in a talkative frame of mind because, because he had met a situation that no amount of money could redeem. He was facing immediate surgery and a long course of chemotherapy for what would eventually become a lethal cancer. It didn't take too much for Clyde to open up and begin talking about his grandfather, who he said had been a strong-backed Presbyterian. His wedding present to Clyde and Libby had been an expensive white leather-bound Bible, King James, of course, and their names and the wedding date was embossed in gold on the cover. It stayed in the box, he said, and ended up in a hall closet. And for months afterwards, every time we saw Granddad, he'd ask me how I liked that new Bible. Lib had written a nice thank you note and all, and we had given our thanks, but he just wouldn't leave it alone. Eventually, though, we got busy with the farm and children and chores, and, well, that box stayed in the hall closet for years and years. But Clyde continued, the real joke was on me. After the doctors gave me the diagnosis, I had a chance to remember Granddad and that box and Bible, and so I went and pulled it down, and then I found that Granddad had placed a $50 bill at the beginning of Genesis, <laughs> and every book throughout, and that there was over $3,000 <laughs> in all. Why, that was enough to buy a new car in those days. But he knew that I would never find it. And he knew that I would never read that book. Stories like this in Elijah's story and David's invite us into profound reflections on ancient questions. What can we know? What must we do? Tales told well stretch us through the frames by which we see the human spectacle. Stories can even show us how wounds can be pathways to healing and how lament can take us down through despair back up to hope. 
to occupy our Christian tradition is to live our lives in, assort, in, in, in connection to this vast assortment of stories. They tell us our history. They deepen our self-knowledge and they form our hopes. But these stories also carry the capacity to startle, to challenge and disquiet us. They remind us of mysteries we can never fully comprehend and beauty we cannot describe. Stories make us negatively capable, as Keats has counseled, enabling us to hold a sort of ambiguity, a sort of lightness in the face of bigotry and rigidity and cultural blindness. For without a sense of ambiguity, there can be no negotiation, little peacemaking, very little lament and no forgiveness. Without ambiguity, we can end up with hatred and white rage. We can end up with ethnic supremacy. But with it, we can edge toward respect and civility and appreciation for other people. Different religious expressions and what it means to be part of different racial and ethnic groups. As Marilyn McIntyre observes, there's a hunger in us all for words and for stories. Stories that satisfy the desire we have for joy and purpose and meaning. We use words and stories as kind of windows to see into the world and occasionally the window glass becomes a sort of mirror and we recognize something about ourselves. Perhaps then we can find something familiar in our own messy, incongruous lives with these stories from the Bible. Elijah is just one story. I've read this story many, many times. I've taught it, preached on it, and yet in this Lenten season, I'm just beginning to understand it. And what I'm learning contradicts almost everything I had believed about it before this week. It's possible to talk about, about the importance of going somewhere remote to spend time alone with God based on this story. It's important to step out of life, to get away from the noise and distractions of work, to escape the world and to be alone with God. We call that a retreat. And I've been on them, I value them, and I've led them. In 2014, I went with nine other Presbyterians from here on a retreat to a remote island, Iona, off the west coast of Scotland. And there on pilgrimage, we walked to the north and the south beaches of the island, and we even climbed Duny, the craggy high point in the middle of the island. There on Iona, I and others sensed the unmistakable presence of God and felt deeply blessed and enlarged. Had I stayed home, nothing would have occurred. We could explore the value of retreats, but I don't believe that's what Elijah's story is about. We could talk about silence and about how God comes to us in the deep quiet. I've listened to wise women and men describe our need to dial down the noise and to breathe deeply and to feel not for God to be above us and abstract and distant, but God within us, holding and knitting us together as a people. And yet I do believe God does meet us in silence and that we are better when we embrace the quiet. But I don't think the story about Elijah is about silence. And more importantly, and maybe disappointingly, I don't believe this is a comforting story at all in which God, God finds Elijah and Elijah finds God. 
in a beautiful and earnest retreat. Instead, I think it's a story full of contradictions about how God refused to give Elijah what he wanted, but instead challenged Elijah to a whole new life in the world. Elijah wasn't on retreat. He was running away. He had just won a major competition to determine which God was real, the God called Baal or the God of Israel. It was a simple contest. Two altars were constructed, and a large dead bull was placed on each. The 900 prophets of Baal prayed and sang and danced and pled for their god Baal to light the fire and burn the offering. Nothing. Nothing happened. When it was Elijah's turn, he made a quick prayer. The wood burst into flames, and the sacrifice was burned. The Lord was on Elijah's side clearly. He then took the 900 prophets of Baal and killed them. And then afraid that Jezebel the queen was after his life, he fled. He fled and he fled. (coughs) First God asked a question of Elijah. What do you think you're doing sitting in a cave by yourself on a mountain? Actually, the Lord asked the question twice. Why are you here, Elijah? And there's more than just a little irritation in the voice. Elijah's answer begins with a testimony to self-righteousness, as John Bell has observed. I'm here being persecuted because of my faith, Elijah says. The prophet whines because he's of the mind that he's been mistreated for doing good work for the Lord. He tells an out-and-out lie and claims he's the only faithful person in the whole country. We know this to be false because just a few verses later, the Lord tells Elijah about 7,000 faithful people who remain in the land. Elijah conveniently forgot. So this isn't the story of a humble prophet heading off on a silent retreat. It's about someone who has found their way into deep trouble, blames it on God, and then claims outright, that he's the only righteous person who cares. The prophet then goes on the mountain for two days. For him, as all other Jews, the mountain is the place that God inhabits. There the Lord stunningly lit the altar and sacrificed the bull. So maybe God will do something spectacular again. One can hope. So a wind comes up. Elijah expects God to be in the wind. The wind, remember, danced over the waters at creation, and God was there. The wind blew back the waters of the Red Sea to allow the Israelites to escape from their Egyptian overlords. God was there. There was plenty of wind, but no sign of God. Then there was an earthquake. Elijah is confident that God is shaking the foundations of the earth just for him, because when Moses met God on the same mountain, the ground shook. There's a great deal of shaking, but no sign of God. Then there's the fire. God spoke aloud in fire, remember, at the burning bush. God was present in the pillar of fire that guided the Israelites through the desert. And recently, God sent fire down from the heaven to prove that Yahweh was the true and authentic God. Tremendous fire, no God. Earthquake, wind and fire, all the signs of heavenly power, but no God. And then came the opposite of what Elijah wanted and expected. 
In the middle of a time-stopping silence, Elijah hears God's voice. But it's no word of affirmation. It's no attaboy. There's no note of approval. Instead, it's the voice that drives Elijah back to where he came from, to Damascus. Go back to Damascus. Back to all that you are running away from. For there is important work there for you to do. Elijah expected God to honor his devotion. God asked him why he had fled. Elijah wanted to escape. He was sent back to the city, Damascus. Elijah wanted God to demonstrate power and spectacle. Instead, God offered silence. God can and does contradict our most basic instincts and assumptions about the future in our lives in remarkable and messy ways. God does not always give us what we want, what we desire. But God, like the most agile parent in the world, mother, father, grandparent, is able beyond time and space to imagine what is needed. God may well see in us the potential for growth and development that's far beyond our imagining. But the Lord may envision for a community, perhaps for this community, a powerful ministry that calls people into relationships and opportunities that address the very real human needs of neighbors, of immigrants, of outcasts in ways that are truly transformational. The Bible is full of these stories of contradiction and conflict. They're full of historical events and human encounters that run in the opposite direction of our human instincts. Too often we look to the Bible to close the discussion. Its real purpose, it seems, is to open us in conversation with the God who has created us, who loves us and walks every step along and beside us and will never leave us alone. You know, a four-year-old might want ice cream for dinner, but if her mother's offer asparagus, is that a sign of the lack of love? An elementary school student may his heart set on the latest version of Lego DC supervillains, but his dad may be working to get him outside to play hockey or ride his bike or go snowboard. Teenager may have an emotional meltdown, we know. Flee to her room and her parents may decide to give space and support but not rush in. Is that the sign of a lack of love? Sometimes love and encouragement and future comes to us and sometimes contradiction. It's sometimes easy, comforting words, and at other times, hard, challenging words. Sometimes it's an embrace, while other moments it's silence. But at times like this, when the world seems to erupt in a senseless spasm of violence, and a gunman apparently seized by a racist ideology of hatred murders, what, 50 people? Muslim worshipers at prayer at two mosques in New Zealand? God very, God's very heart is broken. And the silence is shattered by loud tears and cries of protest. And then the Bible contradicts the silence of the powerful and tyrannical and those bearing hatred and speaks words of justice and outrage and prophetic condemnation toward that wave of hatred and violence directed against people of color, of faiths different or of difference. 
There is no justification for such hatred or violence, but there is in the gospel of Jesus Christ a call to encouragement, of companionship, of advocacy and protest. For in Jesus the Christ we find one who loves and welcomes all people. It is the Bible that encourages us to respond to the victims, the families, and other Muslim people of faith with compassion and love, to hold them in our own tender hearts of prayer and to speak up for respect and civility and mutual forbearance. It is the Bible that contradicts our messy feelings of inadequacy and the lack of connection with words and prayers that bind us together as one human family, loved and blessed of God. It's the Bible that contradicts our, its own stream of violence and calls us to love and respect our neighbors, all of them. For in moments like this, God's power in the world, I think, is revealed most clearly in the resurrection that awaits us at Easter. The power analogous to the forces of creation and the force that can move what is dead to what is living, thriving, and a force that gives life pure Marvelous life. One of our confessions says this. We are convinced that the life wills for each of us is stronger than the death that destroys us. The glory of that life exceeds our imagination. So we treat death as a broken power. No life ends so tragically that its meaning and value are destroyed. Nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen and amen. God of grace and goodness, hold these new members in your heart this day as they join this church family. Strengthen their desire to know you, to serve you, encourage them to learn about you, and engraft them to this family so that their sense of belonging is sure and strong. Show them the gifts you have given them to do your work in this world and in this place. May this church be a place that they can know you and serve you as we all go forward together, trusting you. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your generosity to us. And as we bring these gifts today, we ask that you would bless them and use them for your work of ministry in this world. We thank you for all the blessings you pour into our lives and ask that we might be a fitting reflection of you in this world. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.